Well, if you've got your Bibles, Romans chapter 13. Um, I thought I should give you a word up front. Some pastors I know do a really good job of planning out their sermon series. And so sometimes you'll hear pastors say they go on a couple day retreats, maybe to a cabin somewhere, and they get their Bible out and their calendar out. And it's not uncommon for pastors to plan out 12, maybe even 16 months worth of their sermon series so they know what verse, what passage, six months in advance. I don't know, Brad, maybe if you were that organized when you were preaching. All right. I am not that organized in my preaching, partly for uh, what I think are decent reasons. I don't know. You'll be the judge of that. Oftentimes when I find myself digging into a passage of scripture, I'll realize there's way more here than I can do in one sermon. Or I'll realize, you know, that next section really is so deeply connected to Paul's thinking. I think these two belong together. So I don't work as far ahead as I would like. But sometimes in spite of my lack of foresight, the Lord does something, and I've seen this happen over and over, where God works out the right passages, the right verses for the times we find ourselves in. And I realized uh, a month or so back that we were probably going to be on this chapter, Romans chapter 13, where Paul explains how believers should relate to the authority of government the same week that most of us will go and cast our ballots and vote in a presidential election. It's pretty fitting to consider this topic two days out before many of you will be making all sorts of decisions, obviously about a presidential election, but about local elections and local laws and state representatives and important governmental choices before all of us. An election where many of us have experienced fairly diverse and sometimes fierce opinions, even amongst believers, even amongst family. So uh, I'll just tell you how you should all vote come Tuesday, and then we can go home and have an early lunch if that works for you. So uh, don't worry, that's not my plan for this morning. Uh, Before I read the passage, though, I do want to give you a little context for Paul bringing up this topic in Romans. If you remember, Paul is writing to the Christian church at Rome, a church who has gone through a lot of internal conflict that's been brought on in many ways by the political circumstances of their day. Historians think that maybe some of the conflict between Jew and Gentile in the Roman church came from the fact that before this letter was written, many of the Jews had been expelled from Rome, kicked out as a political stance, the emperor had ruled it, But under Nero, when he had come to power, he had allowed the Jews to return to Jerusalem. Many of those Jewish Christians had returned to what was once their church, but now during this interim period had been run and led by Gentile Christians. And so, as you can imagine, there were probably some conflicts, disputes of authority questions. And at the center of that was this sort of political chaos that the church in Rome lived under. Uh, So, to understand what's happening when Paul takes the time to write this letter, Nero is still the emperor. It's his early years, not quite the ones that he's most infamous for that will come, but uh, N.T. Wright, who I've often quoted as we've worked through the Book of Romans, really an expert on the first century context, he puts it this way. Paul was writing during the first century of the Roman Empire, currently ruled by the notorious Nero. Nero's early years were not as bad as his later ones, but the system he ran was full of injustice and imperial arrogance and had been for a long time. Um, It's not hard to imagine that it might have been hard for the first Christians to figure out how their faith integrated into the Roman Empire, a world dominated by the power and the authority of emperors. Jews had been expelled from Rome, they had been welcomed back, but there was still a sense of skepticism and uncertainty that would prove to be true in just a few years to come when many of those Roman Christians, by Nero himself, would be executed under state order. That skepticism would turn into a tension point for many that lived within the church as they faced greater and greater persecution. 
What is the Christian's responsibility to the authorities and the powers under which we live? How do we relate to a government, often cruel, sometimes unjust, other times incompetent? What does it mean for us as members of a new kingdom, a heavenly kingdom, to find ourselves under the rule and the power of these earthly kingdoms? How should a person relate to the government they find themselves a part of? That's Paul's topic for Romans 13, and we'll have to ask once we get done reading it, why? Why bring this up here now in the middle of Romans? But I want to read the chapter to you and read it to you, and then we'll uh, dig into it. So Romans chapter 13, starting in verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For the same reason, you also pay taxes... For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Romans chapter 13. If you're not familiar with those words, maybe Paul's words surprise you a little bit. Um, Dare I say, maybe they sound a little bit naive about the realities of living under a hostile government. Throughout history, people have really struggled with this particular section of Paul's letter. They've struggled to make sense of it, to apply it, to know how it is lived within their own time. It's been used by dictators and tyrants to oppress people who would speak out against their authority. Some find the passage so perplexing and so ill-fitted to Paul that they believe some later ruler must have inserted it into Paul's letter as a way of trying to get spiritual authority for himself from a sacred text. Some think Paul simply was naive, that at this point he was still too optimistic about Rome. But once he himself had ended up in a Roman prison and then later executed, surely his opinion would have been less optimistic about Roman authority. 
Um, for me, the challenge of this chapter is a little bit different. In the first century, the emperor was the closest thing to a god living on earth for Roman subjects. Sometimes they even claimed to be god and demanded the worship and the tribute that gods were expected. There's not a lot of accountability for an emperor like that ruling in the first century world. His word was the authority. We find ourselves in an interesting time where we don't have an emperor. We don't have one who claims to be God and demands our worship. But instead, we find ourselves participating in a democracy, a kind of government that asks us to participate in choosing its leaders. Even when Rome had had a senate, the vast majority of the population it ruled over had no say. The Senate was a small elite group who made those decisions. The Bible assumes that a person's relationship with a ruler is primarily through honor and the paying of taxes. This was basically what you did as a citizen of the Roman Empire in relationship to the government. You showed honor and recognition and respect, and you paid taxes and revenues to support the government. That's about all you could hope for in the ancient world. Both of those topics come up for Paul as he encourages Christians to do that. Pay taxes to who taxes are due, similar to Jesus' words, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Pay revenue to whom you owe revenue. Give honor to those whom honor is due and respect to those whom respect is due. But our political environment makes Paul's words, in my opinion, a little bit more challenging. It's not so simple in our time to simply write the tax check, say you respect somebody, and be done with the whole thing. We are tasked with a kind of deeper participation. We can vote. We can call up our representatives and share opinions. We can say just about anything we want about elected leaders publicly. Go online and you will find people doing exactly that. We have a sense of personal ownership, of involvement, of participation, that first century participants of the Roman Empire probably couldn't have imagined like we have it. So what does it mean for us, 2020, people of this democracy, to subject ourselves to the governing authorities, which is Paul's word, when we have the opportunity to change it, to have influence on it, to have opinions and act on those opinions about how things should go and who should represent us? When we get to decide, how does Paul's words about submission to governing authorities apply to us? I think maybe the first question is, why does Paul bring this topic up in the book of Romans? It kind of seems at first glance to come out of nowhere. I don't know if you notice this. We're reading about marks of the true Christian, and we turn the page right out of the gate. Paul tells us, be in subjection, and then we're right back into the topic of love, if you notice how the second half of the chapter ends. A strange place for Paul to drop political thoughts in the middle of the book. Some historians think that Christians in Paul's churches had begun to develop a sense of superiority, a kind of detachment from the world that in their minds meant they could begin to disengage from civic responsibilities. They, after all, were a new people. One of the great themes of Romans, this new people of God, they were a part of a new kingdom with a new king, a king of kings. Therefore, what difference did that civil life make? They believed, could have believed, that when they came together in worship, that was the new reality, this was the new world. What happened outside of the church mattered very little. Perhaps if Christ was returning tomorrow, why should I worry about how much taxes I owe Caesar? 
Caesar, with his vision of the future, his vision of a greater Rome in the days to come, meant very little to a people who believed at any moment Christ might return. And if we're citizens of this heavenly kingdom, why would we even identify with or participate in kingdoms other than that kingdom, the ultimate kingdom? Some even wonder if Paul's own words were beginning to be misinterpreted. Could someone take his call to no longer be conformed to the patterns of this world as grounds for open rebellion, for challenging every system, to refusing to participate in anything other than the church? Um, This is where I think sometimes the way our Bibles break down sections and chapters and verses can sometimes cause us problems. If you read Romans like most of us do, like I do oftentimes the first time I come to the book too, you see that number, 13, and you say, okay, we're on to something different than 12. And then you see that this section has its own section header. We're no longer in the section labeled Marks of the True Christian. We're now in the section called Submission to Authorities. So we naturally think that what Paul has done is sort of these little pockets of information that we move from topic to topic. But Paul's original letter did not have section headers, didn't have chapter numbers, didn't have verses. Paul flows from the last verse of 12 into this opening verse of 13. And I think you gain something if you go back and read in the context that causes Paul to bring this topic up. Go back up just one verse, chapter 12, verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Back back up a couple more verses. Verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the Lord, leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you heap burning coals on his head. Notice for Paul, this is not just the needy. If you know someone who's in need, give them something to drink. If you know someone in need, feed them. For Paul, it's if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If your enemy is thirsty, give him something to drink. Much like Paul will also say, pay honor to who honor is due and give respect to who respect is due and pay taxes to whom taxes is due. Instead of this kind of animosity that may have been creeping into the church about who is in and who is out, how this heavenly kingdom somehow disconnects us or removes us from the earthly kingdom, Paul, even in the chapter before this, is arguing for a kind of integration of your life that participates in complex and difficult and costly relationships, loving your enemy as yourself. Pulling money out of your own pocket, your own goods, to support someone who is against you, hostile to you. And so it makes sense for Paul to say this doesn't just apply to neighbors. It carries on into the civic conversations of how you understand your place within government and authority. Heap coals on the head of the government by doing what is good, by doing what is right, by showing honor, by feeding and clothing. That's an important word, though, that Paul uses that I think you need to take time to call out. What Paul technically calls for is submission. Submit yourself to the governing authorities. Now, if you stop for a second, many of you will know this, think about how important that word is to Paul in his writings elsewhere. Think of how often Paul uses and brings up this topic of submission. Children are called to submit to their parents. We are to submit to spiritual authority in our life. Paul calls believers to submit one another to one another. 
Wives submit to husbands and husbands to Christ. Paul even talks about Christ's submission itself to God. It's interesting that Paul uses that word, taking that language he's used in so many of the other important relationships and carries it over into this conversation of government. That here too is another place, like so many of the others Paul assumes exists within the believer's life, that we too learn to practice submission. Now, submission is a very different word in the Greek than obedience. And many of the commentators, when you read, point out the fact that Paul does not call Christians to always, in every situation, obey the government authority. This is a dangerous and a careful nuance that I think you have to take the time to work out, but it's important. What is this relationship between submission and obedience? Surely, there's an element of obedience within submission. You would never imagine that a person is submitting to someone if they constantly and at every opportunity did the exact opposite of what that person was asking them to do. We wouldn't imagine that's a picture of submission. But Paul does not say, do always what every governmental leader, every emperor or governor tells you. Always obey whatever they command. I mean, surely we know that's not true by reading the New Testament itself. Remember uh, Peter in the book of Acts. He was drugged before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling body. And he was questioned about this preaching of Jesus' resurrection that they continued. This was, for Peter, spiritual authority. It was probably a group of elders to him. There's an elder kind of authority. And it was for sure a governing and religious authority. But do you remember what Peter says to the Sanhedrin in Acts? They ask him to stop preaching, and he says, we must obey God rather than men. He does not obey what the Sanhedrin has commanded him, this governing authority over him has commanded him to do. Peter says that they cannot stop preaching what they have seen and heard. He was unwilling to submit? I don't think so. What's interesting is that he stands before that group, hostile, angry. If you remember, at one point they begin an axe to rip their robes and become unglued. But he stands calmly and respectfully before them, unpacking the priorities of his submission and his obedience. He doesn't have assassins, zealots with daggers waiting in the wings to overthrow the Sanhedrin. He isn't arrogant or revengeful before them. Paul, in Acts, several times appears before these Roman religious elites. At times, Paul even uh, referenced his own Roman citizenship. Paul was one of the few people that possessed Roman citizenship in the Bible, and he uses it to his own advantage. He takes advantage of his Roman rights in order to get a larger audience, a better trial. But he also accepts when those same rulers decide to imprison him. It's interesting, in all of Paul's letters that he wrote while he was in prison, some of them he seems keenly aware, knowing that probably his execution is just days ahead. Paul never writes those letters asking his fellow Christians to break him out, to rescue him. Instead, he seems resolved at every opportunity to witness before these leaders. But I think you see in him and Peter and so many others a kind of submission Not just to them, the rulers, but to what God might be doing through them in that particular moment. The conversation is more complex than should Christians always obey rulers. Uh, The Bible doesn't answer that question with the kind of simplicity we would like for it to. It seems to hold open the door that there is a kind of submission by love, by putting on Christ, that can show proper honor 
and respect and submission to the authority, even while it witnesses and prophetically speaks against and disobeys the command of that authority. Douglas Moo, who's a great New Testament scholar, put it this way. To submit is to recognize one's subordinate place in a hierarchy. To acknowledge as a general rule that certain people or institutions have an authority over us. Such a posture will usually demand that we obey what the governing authorities tell us to do. But perhaps our submission to government is compatible with disobedience to government in certain exceptional circumstances. For heeding the hierarchy of relationships in which Christians find themselves is God's call. And all subordination, submission, must always be measured in relationship to our all-embracing submission to him, to Christ. Many of you know, even as parents I can say this, although my parents are in the room, so I never disobeyed them, but there are times where children should disobey the commands of an ungodly parent. They should. There are times where spouses must disobey the wish of another spouse for the sake of the marriage, for the sake of Christ. But such moments of disobedience should help us recognize what proper authority is, what it should be, what it could be, what we have under the authority of Christ, and what, though it is often difficult, lived out in the real world, is still for Paul something of good a submissive spirit, the humility that recognizes those levels of hierarchy we find ourselves a part of. The absence of it in so many of those relationships we're called to submit to is evidence of its good, how it should be. What Paul is really saying here is that we should recognize a system of authority in our lives. That isn't something that we should rebel against or despise or be frustrated by. That every person lives within a system of authority which they find themselves humbly submitting themselves to. To push that a bit deeper, we have a tendency to despise authority. Even authority that God is using within our lives for good. Authority that God has placed. We live in a culture that sees any form of authority as a kind of suppression. A kind of opposition to who we are. Subjection to anyone is abuse, it stifles our self-expression, and it makes us less than we potentially could be, so the thinking goes. We cannot even speak of authority within home, it's become incorrect. We want nothing to do with the accountability of church authority, many of us having experienced or heard testimony of that abuse. Our culture has even decided that biology itself implies a set of genetics that we didn't get a say in. And we cannot submit even to the givenness of our own bodies, our own makeup. An atmosphere of division and suspicion and self-promotion poisons everything. There's a reason you hear very little talk about authority. Even for me, if I was honest, not a topic I think over time we've spent a lot of time as a church talking about. We don't like it. We don't trust it. We feel uncomfortable by it. And we feel vulnerable because of it. It makes us fearful, and it makes us rebellious. Instead, Paul sets this conversation in the context seamlessly from chapter to chapter of love. How shocking that somehow this submission to the government has to do with love. With love for one another, with love for our enemies, love. You remember that great C.S. Lewis quote, that if you love anything, 
you find yourself most vulnerable. To love is to be vulnerable. And so, too, to submit is always to be vulnerable, to trust and to put yourself into a place of vulnerability. But Christ doesn't leave us just in that place of vulnerability. He says that in the midst of the complexity of that submission, we put on Christ, leaving no room for the demands of the flesh, for the demands of our own way, But putting on Christ, we humbly submit ourselves to what God is doing through the authority around us. We are people who live not by personal demand, but whose character and lifestyle reflects humility and confidence and submission in his ways. How can you do that? Live that way. Put on Christ. How can you honor and submit to a nation that you know has all kinds of problems and often gets things wrong? How can you honor a leader that you don't like, that you don't trust, and that you find all kinds of faults with? This is really important, and if you take nothing else away, I think this is the point you should be hearing from Romans 13. Paul says there is no authority except from God. You can struggle with that. How could that possibly be? How would God pick this person? It makes no sense to me. Why in the world would that person be ruling over us? Or you could look at that another way. God says that he is taking responsibility for the governments in this world. God says, you let me worry about who is your leader, about who has authority. I will give authority and I will take authority. There is no authority except from me. One way of looking at that is frustration, mystery, confusion, Another way of looking at it is setting aside something I can't understand or control into the hands of him who is sovereign, the king of all kings, and able to work all things for good. I hear in his words also a warning to those who want to be leaders. Woe to those who want to rule, to those by, who use political power to compel others into unrighteousness, and to those who would use God's name as a kind of pawn to accumulate more support and more power. For every leader's place is finally and ultimately within God's hands. His political power is not something he or she earns. It's not something that they make. It is something that they are entrusted with by a sovereign God. And God is the judge of all. All leaders are under his authority as we find ourselves under theirs. We mean it when we say that he is the king of kings and that all ultimately and finally answer to him. The reason we can submit to these rulers is because they are not the highest authority in our lives. They too are subject to him. Willingly or unwillingly, they are participants in his sovereign rule. Remind yourself of everything that we've been saying about the book of Romans, that God is doing things bigger and greater and at times mysterious to us. But by this long story of his faithfulness to his people throughout their witness, he is a God who is faithful, who is competent, who is capable, who leads his people and guides his people and keeps a remnant. And so too, even when rulers seem to turn against him, to speak ill of him, to reject him, 
to desperately clutch for their own way, their own power, willingly or unwillingly, they too are participants in his sovereign rule. So we pay taxes, we give honor, we show respect, knowing that in our good, we heap coals on the head of the unrepentant, we expose their abuse before God and God's authority. We can do it because we've read the previous 12 chapters of the book of Romans. We've heard over and over that God is faithful, that God is involved, that we are participants in what he is doing within creation, that we are given this greatest assurance of his faithfulness. There's a Christian writer, Ray Pritchard, who writes it this way. We'll all have to contend at times with unsaved husbands, mean-spirited parents, cranky bosses, or teachers who can't wait for the semester to end. Sometimes we'll work for people we can't stand or live with people who treat us cruelly or suffer under a government that constantly promotes evil. What do we do then? Actually, you have many more options than you realize. You can rebel, you can fight back, you could suffer in silence, you could complain to others, you could get angry and try to get even, you could appeal to the authority over you and ask for a redress of your grievances. The more important thing is the attitude of your heart. You must submit to the one in authority in the sense that you must believe that God has put that person in your life for a purpose and that God's will is somehow being done in you through that person, even if you don't see it and don't understand it. He takes responsibility for raising up one leader and pulling down another. He stands behind the ballot box and behind the armies that march and the navies that sail. It is his unseen hand at work in the nations of the world. What's challenging for us is we do participate. We do vote. We do take our grievances before authorities. We stand for what is right, bear witness to it. But in our heart, what I think he communicates so well, we constantly ask ourselves, do we trust that God is doing something by his sovereign hand? So I told you this had something to do with Tuesday and voting. Let me try to draw it all together with this. Clearly, Paul was not writing chapter 13 for people in 2020 going to the election ballot box. Probably not what he had in his mind. But I think there's an important point here for what we do. What does it mean to make political choices? What does it mean Tuesday night as you watch election results coming in? What does it mean, though I pray it does not go this way, there might be more unrest, more conflict, more division in our country because of it? I think this is what Romans 13 means. It means that you engage, not naively, not crudely or ignorantly, but prayerfully you participate. I'm convinced that the two greatest ways that we submit to our government, the kind of government we have, is that we vote with a clear conscience and we give honor by prayer to those who are elected. To not participate, to not participate in a hard-won right that is given to us by our government, to not participate in voting, maybe because you think, what difference does it make? I don't like politics, I'd rather not get involved, it's all rigged, what's the point, is really to live towards our government with a kind of disdain, a kind of annoyance and irritation. You do not honor the authority over you by refusing to participate in it. 
You don't honor it by rolling your eyes or laughing at people who care, maybe some who care too much. You don't have to love a particular candidate or fly a certain flag or put out yard signs to participate. But I do think Romans suggests that you play a part as a submission, as a participant in this government to take your values, to take your conscience with you, and to exercise those rights honestly and prayerfully that have been given to you. Maybe that's hard. Maybe there are deep suspicions. Maybe there are frustrations or pains that make you reluctant to do so. But I really believe part of what Romans 13 suggests is that our participation and submission to authority means that we utilize those rights that have been given to us. We are asked to participate, and so as Christians submissive to that authority, we participate. And second, we honor those elected. Um, By and large, I'm a pretty non-political person when it comes to the pulpit. Uh, For good reasons, I've tried over the years. By the way, we've had political elections while I've pastored this church before, other important elections. On occasions, I've uh, usually written to you if there was something, a Supreme Court decision or a law that I felt needed. Uh, Most often, I don't bring it into the pulpit. And I fear that in a culture where politics has tended to swallow and divide almost every institution, that I need and most of you need a place that we come to every week where it's not the primary topic, where the most important thing that happens here is not what the breaking headline was this week, but what God is doing in and through us. Sundays, this Sunday, reminds me that there is more going on this week in your life, in your neighbor's lives, in our nation, than just a political election. But that doesn't mean that I don't have my own political ideas or my own views. Uh, just because they're not the most important thing to me when I stand in the pulpit doesn't mean that I don't care, that I don't participate or have ideas. And to be honest with you, there is much that I'm concerned about in the coming days. Um, Though I don't feel it here locally at this moment, there are places in this country where I do see people of faith, various faiths, facing religious liberty challenges. Uh, It's not hard to see some of those being expanded nationally. I do worry about the election's consequences on the rights of the unborn, I worry about the political divisiveness that I see becoming worse and worse. I'm worried that some of the important conversations we should have about race have not happened because they've been hijacked by politics and often made worse by violence. Some of those important conversations seem harder today than they were. I have all sorts of ideas about economics and other policies, but I'm only trying to point this out to show you I do have ideas. Some of them are very strongly held. But Romans 13 reminds me that God is ultimately responsible for the days that are ahead of us as a people and as a nation. That doesn't excuse me from caring. I participate. But it keeps me from being too desperate. It allows me to do what Paul ultimately calls us to do. It allows me to come here, to put on Christ, to humble myself, to submit to the process and trust that through love, this better way, all things are in the hands of him who is sovereign. That's what Paul is ultimately saying. Do it. Submit yourself to it. Participate in it. Pay your taxes. Show your honor. But let God take responsibility for what happens. If I could end with this, for people of faith, in the end, there is no winning or losing. 
I say that, again, as a person who has ideas about what I would like to see happen within this country. But as a believer, as your pastor, I'm compelled to remind you that we do not live in a world that is characterized now by winning and losing. There is no winning and losing because Christ has already won. All things have been transformed. All things have been caught up in this work that by his death and his resurrection and his return are different are new, are becoming new, and will ultimately be made new. What is left for us is not to stress ourselves out, not to live our days in fear or anxiety or defeat, but out of prayer, out of a clear conscience, not naively or reluctantly, we participate and we trust. We trust him. That if our candidate loses, if our views lose on the ballot, we have not lost. He is still sovereign. This is his will. This is his plan. Politics matter because they're the arena by which we bring our message, our values, our conscience, our witness to the world. But they're also the place by which we demonstrate our greater reliance, our hope, our confidence, our peace, our trust in him. Those two things are two things that are so hard to hold together in this world today. An honest participation by conscience and a heart that is not anxious or fearful, but who trusts God in all things. So I ask you do this as we leave today, as we participate, as we wait and see what God has in store for us. Verse 14, let us put on the Lord Jesus Christ. What a great line. Take him out of the closet, put these clothes on, and walk out into the world. He is yours. You are in him, as we've been saying in Romans, from him, through him, and to him. Participate. Act out of conscience. And when you go to bed, trust, peace, sovereignty, Christ, King of Kings. We're going to close in prayer, praying for us as a people, that we can do that, that we can live out Paul's words. We'll take a moment to pray for our country, and we'll do what we always do on Sundays. We'll close out by worshiping him. He is our Lord. He is our hope. He is our confidence. Let's pray together this morning. Heavenly Father, you know, as everyone in this room does, that we find ourselves in hard times. So many of us this morning woke up to news alerts on our phone. I got one in the middle of service. New polls coming in, new predictions. Everybody wondering about what Tuesday will mean. God, we hear your words through Paul that you have given us this incredible opportunity to participate in that. We don't take that lightly. For so many believers who have tried to live out this submission in hostile governments that didn't give them that opportunity... Lord, we recognize the incredible grace that we have to be participants, as flawed and as difficult as sometimes it may feel. So we thank you for that, wholeheartedly. But I pray, God, that as we do Tuesday vote, clear-conscienced, participants, submissive to this task before us, that, God, we would remember that you are the King of kings, that you are sovereign, that you've reminded us today in your word that there is no authority outside of you, that what happens happens under your hand and under your watch, 
that ultimately, God, this decision is your responsibility. So this morning, we take any anxiety or fear or frustration, we take it this morning and we place it in your hands. You are responsible for our days, for our nation's days. Lord, we recognize this morning that you are sovereign, that you are working in ways that so often we don't understand. And so we trust you. I pray, God, that we would bear witness to that in the days to come. That, God, we would share our views and our opinions, that we would be open and honest and prayerful, never naive. That, God, we would speak up for what we believe, bear witness to those values. But, the Lord, the world would not see within us desperation or fear, but conviction, boldness, and hope. Faith in you. God, I pray that by your spirit, there would be a sense of calm in the days to come, Lord. We pray that some reports of unrest, God, would just be speculation. And we pray, God, you would just continue to work in our nation as a people. Lord, there is so much that we need your help with right now. So many conversations that seem impossible. So much forgiveness that seems impossible. So few enemies being loved. God, we don't know how to do it well. We feel within us. We don't want to do it. We're as frustrated as everyone else. So we need your help. God, by your spirit, let us put on Christ. Teach us what that means. To live within you. What you are doing, God. To reflect you to the world. To be your people. To bear witness to this hope that we have in you. So we do what is most important this morning, God. We worship you. We remind ourselves of what we have. What lays before us is you. What's to come in the days ahead is you. That our hope for eternity is in you. That you are not going anywhere. That you are here. That your kingdom is coming. And that we have this great assurance that you've given us of being participants in it. Lord, I pray your spirit would work in our hearts as we worship this morning. Shape us, form us into your people. It's in your name we pray.